Well, let's open to Zechariah chapter 14 this morning. And we're going to cover the first half of this chapter and, Lord willing, finish it up uh, next Sunday. And then uh, we'll hit Easter after that and hopefully be in the book of James next six months or so. So let's read verses 1 to 11 and pray together. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, and the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall, split, shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains... For the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Gibeah to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate. And from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Father in heaven, we are desperately in need of your Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Apart from his work in our hearts, we won't be able to discern the truth. Apart from his work in our hearts, we won't be able to enjoy the benefits of your kingdom or see the glory of Christ. Please come and work. Give me strength as I preach and give your people the ability to to receive the word in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, would you turn us from our idols to serve the living and true God as we wait for him to return in his son once more. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 1526, the reformer Martin Luther wrote a commentary on Zechariah. His commentary, though, stopped at chapter 13 without any explanation why. 
One year later, Luther wrote a second commentary on Zechariah. But even this time with just some brief remarks on chapter 14 that begin with these words. Here in this chapter, I give up, for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. We must appreciate Luther's humble admission. His remarks illustrate how many Christians over the centuries have been humbled in their attempts to understand Zechariah 14. And I won't pretend to give you a definitive word on this chapter. In fact, if you leave with bunches of questions in your mind, it's probably because I don't know the answers to them either. But I will set before you what I've learned from it, especially as I see the the New Testament developing uh, many of the same themes along lines of the kingdom being already but not yet. Already in that Christ has come a first time and not yet in that Christ is still to come again. And once again, we'll encounter quite a bit of symbolism. Zechariah will use categories from the past to speak of future realities, which far surpass the old forms. At the same time, we shouldn't press the symbolism too far, such that we turn actual future events into mere spiritual realities. The symbolism is rich indeed, but that symbolism points to some actual events that have yet to occur, such as the visible return of Jesus and the cosmic transformation of the universe. I'll try to put some more skin on that in a minute, but... Before I do, let me give you a synopsis of how I understand this passage. Zechariah 14 uses symbolic language to describe the actual return of Jesus Christ to establish his future kingdom, the blessings of which we can already experience now through the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again. Zechariah 14 uses symbolic language to describe the actual return of Jesus Christ to establish his future kingdom, the blessings of which we can already experience now through the Holy Spirit. Now, in order to see that, we're going to have to take several steps. And the first step is this. Zechariah takes us from a city embattled to a city secure. He takes us from a city embattled to a city secure. I want you to see the beginning and the end of our passage, uh, the the bookends, so to speak, of, of these 11 verses. Because Zechariah takes us from a scene like the battle for Gondor in the Lord of the Rings, and it ends on this peaceful setting like the Shire, after evil has been been vanquished. Okay, and if you've seen the movie, we're going to move from the dreadful music of dun, 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 you know, to the dun, 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 of the Shire, right? This is where we're going, okay? So these are the bookends here. And in verses 1 and 2, we see a city embattled. It says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. 
For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, for people who've just come out of exile, a scene like this is very familiar and it is very tragic. Okay, it's familiar because the generation before them experienced these very things. God gathered the nations against his people to put them in exile for a time. And the arrogant nations did. They did. They dominated Israel. They captured their city. They stole their possessions. They took advantage of their women. And they carried them into exile. All of this happened, of course, because of sin. Sin filled God's people. Sin filled God's city. And God was seeking their repentance and their humility and their exclusive trust. He would see through it that a people, a true people, a remnant, would finally be kept for him, devoted to him, and worshiping him. Here we find a similar scene that's promised for the future. He's borrowing from the past imagery of exile, and he envisions a future day. God will gather the nations against Jerusalem once again. And his people will experience horrific suffering. And yet, through it all, God will preserve for himself a remnant. Some will perish. But it says the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. There will be a remnant. Amos chapter 9 Verses 9 and 10 are also instructive here because it shows us why God would bring the nations against his people once again. It says in Amos 9, verse 9, For behold, I will command and take the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. You see, even toward the end, some within God's people will still not have learned from God's past judgments. The arrogant will have to be sifted once again. Some will be saying, Disaster's not going to overtake me. Zechariah's message is similar. God's judgment is coming, and even the nation of Israel won't escape it. And this is quite fitting, since most of the emphasis has been on God, most of the emphasis throughout Zechariah has been on God judging the Gentile nations. Now we kind of see a shift, a turn for a moment, saying that judgment will also come for the Jews. In other words, one's Jewish bloodline means nothing if they are not united to Christ by faith. But some will be. It says that God will preserve for himself a remnant. 
a remnant that must be united to Christ by faith. Not all will be cut off from the city, and God will protect them. You see, there's good news in our passage as well. The good news is that suffering for God's remnant will end. Their tribulation will end. Exile will end. The enemies of God's people will not get the final word. If you look down at verse 11, for example, and this is the, this is the ending of the passage, this is the, the other bookend, it says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. That's a remarkable ending. The nations of verse 2 will no longer be a threat. The city embattled will finally become the city secure. But how do we get from the city embattled to the city secure? How will God do it? The answer is the return of the king. The return of the king. And this is our second step toward understanding Zechariah 14. The king returns to deliver his people in battle and transform the earth with his rule. Let's develop that a little more. First, the king returns to deliver his people in battle. Verse 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. If there's anything the scriptures teach us, It's this, when God goes to war against anybody, he doesn't lose, okay? I mean, one of his angels put to death 185,000 soldiers in a night, and he's got myriads upon myriads of them, not to mention that he holds the very nation's being in existence. This isn't going to be a long battle. In fact, we see Jesus himself making quick work of the nations in Revelation 19. So he will return to defeat the enemies of his people. Verse 4 continues this battle march. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half... Of the mount shall move northward, and the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now we do have some more symbolism here going on, pulling from revelation, from previous revelation in Scripture, and using it, these these old forms, to point to future. Realities. The difficulty here is figuring out how much of it's symbolic and how far should I press it. I mean, usually in the, in the scriptures, when you talk about God's hands and feet, those are anthropomorphic, uh, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, God's invisible. What do you mean he has hands and feet? It, it, they are figures of, of, of speech to describe what he's, what he's like. But on this side of the incarnation, we got to deal with it. The Son of God has feet. 
still. And it seems like his feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives at his return. In fact, Acts chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 says, Jesus ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives where he's at with his disciples. And the angel tells him he's going to come in the same way. So, this is hard to figure out, okay, what's, what's, how much is symbolic and how much far should I push it? But let's take some of the symbolism for, for a minute. The Mount of Olives seems very significant here because in Ezekiel 11, verse 23, the glory of the Lord had departed from the temple and it stood... Uh, this is during the exile, and it stood in, over the mountain in the east. This is the Mount of Olives. Then later, in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2, after Ezekiel gives us this grand vision of God's cosmic temple um, in, in the kingdom to come, it's, it's, it speaks of the Lord's glory returning from the same mountain in the east. Zechariah seems to be building on, on, on the same imagery from, from Ezekiel, and he's painting a picture of the Lord's glory returning to his people and returning to his temple. If you think also back in Scripture of this pattern, you entered the Garden of Eden, which is like God's sanctuary on earth from the east. You enter the tabernacle from the east. You enter the temple from the east. Here Yahweh is returning to his people from the east. But the manifestation of his glory, the sheer gravity of it all, is enough to split the mountain in two. And this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, if we're reading our Bibles... When the Lord chooses to manifest his glory, Jeremiah 10.10 says the, the earth trembles and shakes. Psalm 97.5 says that mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Isaiah associates the Lord's coming for his people as a day when he's raising up valleys and, and tearing down mountains, preparing a highway for his people. In other words, the the mountains and the valleys are like nothing in the path of this divine warrior. But notice what the splitting of this mountain provides. It provides his people a way of escape. In fact, the Hebrew behind the English word split also appears in Exodus 14, 21, where God split the Red Sea. Okay, Pharaoh and his armies corner Israel. There's no way out for him. The situation is impossible. And then, booyah, God splits the Red Sea and you got a highway for his people to go through on the other side, right? To escape on dry ground. Well, the same thing is going on here. When Jesus touches his feet on the Mount of Olives, he will provide his people with a way of escape. He will make a highway to rescue them. It will be like a new and greater Exodus deliverance. Then the Lord my God will come, verse 5 says, and all the holy ones with him. Now that could be angels, Mark eight thirty eight, 
And 2 Thessalonians 1.7 say that Jesus will return with holy angels and flaming fire. But other places in Scripture suggest it could also be God's people, the whole company of his redeemed people returning with him. Zechariah 10.5 seems to suggest that it's God's people, this, this army of strengthened people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, verses 16 and 7 and Revelation 19 verse 14 suggest that when Jesus returns to earth, his people will be returning with him. Even those who were dead or martyred will be raised to life and reign with him. It could also be both angels and people. We get a similar picture in Deuteronomy 33 verses 2 to 3 where the Lord's holy ones refer to both the angels and the people. But regardless, here's the point. The king will open a way of escape, but that way of escape leads to himself. It's not just to get them out of trouble. It's to get them to himself so that they are with him. So that he is their refuge. So this is some uh, some some of what the the king uh, the king does when he returns he and to deliver his people in in battle. Secondly, the king also transforms the earth with his rule. So you have this. Intense period of judgment on the people of God. Jesus returns to the earth. And when he returns, he transforms the earth with his rule. Verse 9 says that the Lord will be king over all the earth. The Lord will be one and his name one. Refers back to the Shema of Deuteronomy Four and six, meaning there will be no other kings on earth besides this king. His supreme right to the throne will finally be manifest on earth. It seems to me that this is the same moment Jesus speaks of in, in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight and Matthew 25, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne in the new world. And when that happens... Things about this world will change cataclysmically. Okay, so listen to this in verse 6. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. Now, there's a translation difficulty here, and the ESV notes it for you in the margin or at the bottom. Um, A better translation would be this. On that day, there shall be no light, The splendid ones will congeal. This is the new English translation. The splendid ones will congeal. The splendid ones being the the, the heavenly lights, the stars and the moon and the the sun. It says they will congeal. In other words, when Jesus returns, light as we know it, coming from the sun, moon and stars, it will cease to exist. And in its place will be this, verse 7... And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. How do you have 
light without light. God shows up and floods the earth with his glory. God isn't dependent on this created order for light. You do know that light existed before the sun. Genesis 1-3 creates light. Doesn't get to the sun till chapter till, till, till verse 14. God's not dependent on the created order for light. 1 John 1.5 says that God is light. When Jesus returns and establishes his rule, the earth will enter an age of never-ending light. There won't be any day or night. The sun's not going to be rising and there's going to be no distinction. No evenings. There won't be a sunrise anymore or a sunset. But we'll have something far more glorious to gaze upon. Revelation 21 verse 23 says that his city will have no need for sun or moon or lot, or, or, or uh, sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. You think the sun is bright? You ain't seen nothing yet. You think sunsets are beautiful? You ain't seen nothing yet. Verse 8 continues the transformation. On that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Now, this life-giving river actually builds on some biblical imagery that stretches from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Uh, The Garden of Eden was comparable to a sanctuary because of the Lord's presence within it. That's what happens when God dwells somewhere. That place becomes a sanctuary. And within this garden sanctuary, we find a river that goes out in four directions to water the land. Of course, after Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, they don't experience the plush land fed by this river any longer. Instead, the ground would be cursed. It would bear thorns and thistles, all because of sin. The same thing gets repeated with Israel after they come into the promised land. And they continue in their sin. And because of their sin, God shuts up the sky so that the promised land where he was to dwell with his people... It becomes desolate as well, a wasteland, a cursed land. But then in step the prophets, especially Ezekiel 47. And by grace, the Lord would make a new sanctuary where he would dwell with his people once more, just like he dwelled with them in the garden. And coming from the Lord's presence in the new sanctuary that that Ezekiel sees, is, is a river, a great river. It's a great read. If you go read Ezekiel 47, verses 1 to 12, where he, he's kind of led around to the temple and it's ankle deep and then it's knee deep and then it's waist deep and then it gets to a point where nobody can even swim across it. And it travels down into the Arabah and, and also turns the Dead Sea fresh. So wherever this river would flow from the presence of God, it brought new life again. And much of the descriptions in Ezekiel 
of the waters teeming with life as a result and, and the fruit of the trees growing without fail, they all hearken back to the garden before the fall. In other words, the river of life spoke of the reversal of God's curse on the land and the reversal of God's curse on the world. And not just the reversal of the curse, but a filling with the life of God himself. Zechariah is building on the same imagery, only he takes it a step further. The river isn't just flowing from the temple. It's flowing from the city. Meaning the whole city has become a garden-like sanctuary. And this is the same city we saw back in chapter 2 of Zechariah that doesn't have walls because of all the people and the livestock that are within it. This river isn't just flowing for the Jews, in other words. It's flowing for Gentiles, too. And then finally, in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5, they give us another glimpse of this same river spoken of by the prophets. And it says this, The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And he's not done yet. Next, we see the king exalting his final city. Verse 10 says, The the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. So all these gates and the tower and the wine presses, their actual places in Jerusalem in all four directions of the compass. The idea being the whole city is going up. This is another way of saying that God's kingdom alone would stand. The same imagery appears in Isaiah 2. In Micah 4, to speak of the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, raised up above all other kingdoms. And then finally, we reach the end once again in verse 11. Jerusalem shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. There shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. The harem in Hebrew. It's also known as the ban. You're probably most familiar with it when God tells Israel to take over Jericho. To take the ban was to wipe everybody out. It was a cursed city. The harem. If your city was under the ban, you were under the threat of divine extermination. God's curse was upon you for sin. But not this city. 
This city will never experience a threat of divine extermination. God's curse will never again come against it. No more thorns or thistles growing. No more nations raging. No more exile to experience. No more curse. And John puts it about, puts it, uh, says the same thing about this city in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So how will God take us from the city embattled to the city secure? The King Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, he will return to deliver his people in battle. And then he will transform the earth with his rule. But there's still, more one, there's still one more step that we must take. And I don't want to overlook it. Most of what I've said pushes these events to the very end of history. When Christ sets up his reign on earth. But I don't want to leave you with the impression that we must wait to experience the blessings of his kingdom. Because in the coming of Jesus Christ, the kingdom has been inaugurated. You see, what's the one thing that makes all the difference in our passage? The one thing is the presence of the king. The presence of the king is what defeats our enemies in battle. The presence of the king is what transforms the world into his kingdom. The presence of the king is the source of life in his sanctuary-like city. And the New Testament says the life found in the presence of the king is available to you today. You say, how could it be available to me today? Because Jesus Christ already bore the curse for us on the cross. We can be part of his people, his new Jerusalem, now by trusting in him and having our curse removed. The New Testament pictures the church as the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, God's temple, where God chooses to dwell among his people. How can he choose to dwell with this city? Because he's removed the curse from them through his son, Jesus Christ. This is your access point. Jesus lifted God's curse. He lifted the ban from you. But something else. What was it that Jesus asked the woman of Samaria? This woman who had had five husbands and the man she was currently living with was not her husband? What did Jesus say to her as he sat with her by the well? Give me a drink. She says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus comes back. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, 
you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sound familiar? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And what is this spring of water? How do I access this so-called living water? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 7, whoever believes in me, so this is how you access it, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John says, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Do you know when Jesus was glorified? Jesus was glorified when he was lifted up for sinners on the cross. When he was raised from the dead and when he was seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. It is from here that Jesus pours out rivers of living water through the Holy Spirit on his people until he comes again. Zechariah 14 uses symbolic language to describe the actual return of Jesus Christ to establish his future kingdom, the blessings of which we can already experience now through the Holy Spirit. You see, eternal life doesn't just mean it lasts a really, really long time. It means the quality of the life of the kingdom to come, where the river, where the river of living waters will flow. The quality of life can be ours now through the Holy Spirit. It will last forever, yes, But it's also speaking to the quality. So in that light, I want to leave you with just three closing exhortations. Uh, Maybe four. First, come to Christ now for living water. This is how the book of Revelation ends with Jesus and the church pleading with everybody to come and to drink of this water. It doesn't have a price on it. It's free. You don't have to work for it. It's free. All provided through Christ. God sent his son into the world to die for your sins. And by trusting in Jesus, you will become a citizen of his future city. That has no curse over it. But citizens of Christ's future city drink from his living water today. That means the Holy Spirit brings new life where there was once death in you. It means that you now have access to the presence of the king. And just like the river in Zechariah, the king transforms all that he touches into a new creation. It means that God himself is the one you turn to throughout your days for joy and hope and ultimate satisfaction. You're not running around like the Samaritan woman looking for satisfaction in in this or that relationship, in this or that idol 
You're finding your satisfaction in Jesus alone. He is everything. It's like the Psalms says in Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. Are you spiritually thirsty this morning? The scriptures say, come and drink from the fountain of living water. Come to him and drink. Something else. Trust Jesus with your present struggles. You know, a vision like this is uh, of the future is, is relevant for your present struggles with sin and with relationships and other crises and, and with life, period. Because it says this, if Jesus Christ can and will do all of this at the end for his people, what do you think he can do in your life now? He is a God who splits mountains to rescue his people. He is a king who transforms the created order as we know it, just by showing up. Think of all the transformation that he's able to do in your life. There's a reason that 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If the new has already come, then there is hope for change. There's hope for reconciliation. There's hope for forgiveness. There's hope for growth. I want to read you one example from Paul David Tripp's book, uh, uh, What Did You Expect? Um, He's speaking specifically of regrets that spouses often experience in marriage. But I think his words apply much more broadly uh, to, to lots of other things and come from a similar vision that we've looked at of the future. It says, he says this, Perhaps the brightest, most wonderful commitment of our Redeemer is captured in these words from Revelation 21, verse 5. Behold, I am making all things new. New is the operative word for what God is seeking to do in you and in your marriage. You are not stuck. You are not committed to the mistakes of the past. You are not cursed to pay forever for your errors. God's work is in the work of renewal. He sent his son to earth in order to make real and lasting change possible. God has made fresh starts and new beginnings possible. Reconciliation can take place. Restoration really does happen. What was broken can be healed. The weeds of the old way can die, and flowers of a new, better way can grow in their place. God will not call us to face our harvest without giving us what we need to face it. And he will not call us to plant new seeds of a better way without giving us the wisdom and strength to do it. As we face regret, we bask in forgiveness 
and then turn to live in a new way, embracing the power that is ours as children of God. Third, let's keep our longings in Christ's future kingdom. Let's keep our longings in Christ's future kingdom. For some of you, that's very easy because of the things you suffer week in and week out. You are ready for this king to return. But for others, how easy it is to get so distracted with this life and so comfortable with the riches of this world and so easy with the way things are going that we lose sight of what is truly glorious. Advertisements make grand promises of how their product or their diet or their exercise routine or their vacation packages will revolutionize your life. And false prophets feed off the voice of the people and tell us to live our best life now. And while many of us find the theology of a Joel Osteen laughable, we have to at least ask if our pocketbook is saying anything different. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. And that's why we need the Bible. The Bible points us to what is truly glorious. The Bible keeps our, our longings in the right age. So let Zechariah's vision of the end keep your longings in the right place. Let it shape how you view your money. That you'd rather, up, that you'd rather store up riches there where moth and rust and do not destroy and thieves don't break in and kill. Let it shape how you view a sunset. When you see a glorious sunset, let it be a reminder to you that there's coming a day of unending light and colors the book of Revelation speaks of that are stretched to the max in terms of beauty. And they will outshine the sun on its most brilliant day. Let it put some perspective on on what you count truly wonderful. Is it college sports? Is it corporate success? Is it financial independence? As C.S. Lewis would say, that's like playing with mud pies in the slums because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased, oftentimes. So let this vision from Zechariah 14 keep your longings in the right place, in the right age. And lastly, take courage when you face hostility. We might be taken by surprise when the day of suffering comes. We might be taken by surprise when certain people are put in positions of authority that we'd rather not have there. We might be taken by surprise when evil confronts us. 
But let this passage remind you that God is never taken by surprise. He is sovereign and in control of all, even the evil nations. Verse 2 says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. They are under his sovereign sway. And also remember that he promises to protect his people. Even if it means our life is taken, he will protect our soul and raise our body from the dead, just like he did Jesus' body. And he will give us the ultimate victory as the people of God. Strengthen your soul with this truth in the face of hostility. God has a plan to save his people. And you've read what that plan is even before it happens. And when God's city is finally exalted, all who are in Christ, all who have been drinking of the river of God's delight through Jesus, they too will be exalted with it. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. So let us take courage in his return.